Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 58. We're recording on Friday, June 20th, 2014. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. It's nice to have you back. Thank you. I hope you had a lovely vacation. I did. I baked myself in the sun with plenty SPF 50. Is that the highest you can get? Uh, I have 75 that I use on my very freckly face. Oh, but I, that, like, that's like liquid aluminum. Flow. This is like how you know you're a ginger is I went through a family size pump bottle of SPF 50 by myself in four days. <laughs> um, but I read some good books and I had a great time listening to you and Amanda on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, you had a good time. Last week. Um, so we've got a couple of things to mention before we get into the show. One is uh, we had enough demand for our summer read more books t-shirt that we're doing another small run of those that are, will be available through June 29th. If you go to teespring.com slash readmorebooks2, the number two, mm-hmm. um, or we can drop, you can find the link in the show notes. You can get those. They're 20 bucks. They're fun. Good for summertime frolicking. Yeah, we've got red shirts and blue shirts and crewnecks and v-necks and things for ladies and things for gents. That was or... like, that's like a very Susian read you just did. That was nice. <laughs> you just kind of came off. Why, thank you. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, there's ladies' <laughs> My... cuts, fellas' cuts. Uh, no kids. We don't have those yet. Um, nah, but... we should do a, a run of, of kids' bookish shirts at hmm. some point. I just ordered a batch of uh, read read me books onesies from our friends at word bookstore for all of the people that i know who are having babies yes, so maybe those we are should, excellent maybe we should do uh, a book riot mm. bookish baby something or oh, other yeah, we'll have to figure that out so check those out and if you're so inclined that would be great um another bit of follow-up that our good friends over at oyster i, I wish i had a drum roll button or something <laughs> uh, android now yes, available on finally. android a little sooner than we expected. I think they had said uh, yeah. it would be fall. Fall. Well, they heard a lot of feedback, I think. We were hearing a lot of feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get it on Android. You can get it um, on your Kindle Fire since it runs Android. You can, get you can it on your use Google it on Next a Nook. 7, get on a Nook since it runs Android. So now you have no excuse not to try Oyster. Um, there's a free trial. Um, that you can go through. They didn't pay us. This is not a sponsored ad, right. I should say. They do sponsor some do, shows, right. but they didn't sponsor this one. Uh, because and we they kind of didn't need to because we have to talk about this. So um, that's a nice bit. And of I guess news. if you don't know Oyster, the quick pitch is it's uh, all you can read ebooks for $9.95 a month. Yep, Oysterbooks.com. Right. And they say now they have some. Uh, insane number of titles, five hundred thousand. Yeah, it's crazy more than like it's more than half a million, and they just got Simon and Schuster on board recently. So they have Harper Collins and Simon and Schuster, which is two of the big five. Uh, Simon and Schuster had like all, has all of Hemingway's backlist, which I'm taking advantage of mm, right now mm. because my Jeff summer reading assignment was a movable feast, and I'm doing it. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um, I wonder if they thought people are traveling and they're reading and. We should strike while the iron is um, humid. You know, it this makes summer. That, uh, that would make a lot of sense. They also rolled out some new themes and like uh, ways that you can poke at the text and font and adjust mm-hmm. it for your preferences within the books. And I've been messing with that because they've had a nighttime reading mode for a while that inverts the colors, so the background of the page is black and the text is white, and um, which works pretty well for reading in a dark place, but they rolled out also a new theme um, that the ad copy in the email that I got specifically says is great for reading in the sun or on the beach. So I think ah. you're on to something there. They're wanting the service to be available for people during summer travel and vacation. And, you know, like everybody's talking about the books they're going to catch up on over the summer and Oyster is all backlist. So that makes 
a lot of sense. And sooner is never bad. If you can get it right. shipped, ship it, baby. Um, all right. So let's do our first read. We'll get into the show. So Audible is back. Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks, over 150,000 titles to choose from, fiction, nonfiction, bestsellers, all the categories that you've likely heard of uh, are on Audible. Free apps on your iPhone, Android, Windows phone. You can download and listen anywhere. Um, Unlike a streaming service, you own the files, so you can, you know, you can, uh, even if you stop your membership, you still have those files to listen to after the fact. Um, they've got, Audible's got a really great syncing program. It's called WhisperSync, where you can switch back and forth between your Kindle um, and your audiobook. Audible's owned by Amazon um, without losing your place. And also, they added to Kindle's uh, a one tap button where you can switch between audio and text and not miss a beat, which is really sweet. Um, I don't know what else to say too much. That's the deal. If you, Now, here's the deal. You go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot, get a free 30-day trial, which includes an audiobook of your choice. Hard to say no to that. Mm-hmm. We got picks. We do. Um, my pick I'm listening to right now is A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. And the subtitle is one of these mushy make you feel like you know everything, the power of inquiry to spark breakthrough ideas, blah, blah, blah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's sort of pitched at business people, um, but it is about why questions are so useful as thinking tools. Um, and I'm kind of on a pseudo business book kick. I've just finished before this Creativity Incorporated by Ed Catmull, and then I'm starting Design as a Job by Mike Montero. So um, it's it's very it's interesting. It's seven hours long. It's a little more self helpy kind of talk than I was anticipating. But there's a lot of good anecdotes about people that ask interesting questions that led to revolutionary change in whatever field mm-hmm. they were in. Um, and it breaks down kind of the four stages of questioning from investigation, interrogation, illumination, and I think implementation, something like that, where this is kind of how turning a question into action works. Um, anyway, I find it very interesting. It's a more beautiful question by Warren Berger. That's my I'm gonna this week. Analyze all of the conversations that we have about work stuff yes. through the lens of knowing that you're reading that right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have an audible pick too that. Uh, I'm like filling in gaps in my reading, which is a thing I try to do every summer. But I am finally, for the very first time, encountering The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Yeah, uh, I know. It's so fantastic. Like, I just felt like I missed that critical point when I was a teenager that everyone seems to read the books. And uh, I hadn't gotten around to filling them in yet. But there are several versions available. And Twitter um, overwhelmingly recommended the Stephen Fry narration to me. And so I have haven't experienced the other ones, but the Stephen Fry one is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Uh, there's so much great wordplay and whimsy in the stories, and Fry does these incredible voices for all of the ridiculous characters, <laughs> including like animated uh, sentient colors of blue, like shades of blue that have personalities. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. If you know the story, you know. Uh, but it, it's just really been a fun way to encounter it, and I've been feeling as I've, I'm driving around listening to it that I don't know if I would have liked the story so much on paper or like I have a hard time sort of seeing the movie of something in my head when I'm reading it. I think it's just so different that I might not have gotten it, but listening to it, having someone read me the story with all the characters' voices is really bringing it to life. And uh, it's only, it's like five and a half hours long. Yeah, it's uh, not, it's, they're not very long. Yeah. Right. This first one is um, is great. I'm probably just going to mainline the rest of them through the rest of the summer. It's been really fun so far. Um, I have never read the, or listened to the narration by Stephen Fry. Adams and Fry were really good friends. Mm. Um, so I don't know if he's got a little extra juice for it there, though he's a, he's a great narrator in his own right. Um, all right. So that leads us to the week's news. We got a little more follow-up. Um, I don't Lots know. Lots of fun things this week. Was this with you and I or, or you, me yeah, and Amanda? Yeah, this was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Talked about this. Um, we talked about George R. R. Martin, who was... Basically, it wasn't really an auction, just making available. If you wanted to pay 20 grand, you could you could have your name serve as a character who dies in an upcoming uh, Game of Thrones book. And someone bought it. 
And yep. not surprisingly, it's someone with too much money at Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. A, a Facebook employee named Dave Goldblatt mm -hmm. um, paid $20,000 to this wolf sanctuary in Santa Fe, which was the charity that George R.R. R. Martin had designated. Um, and he raised more than $350,000 for, uh, for the cause throughout uh, this fundraising effort. Uh, but so now Dave Goldblatt is going to be the name of a character, <laughs> which is just so fantastic. And, and Dave Goldblatt was decapitated summarily. Right. Yeah, I don't and know he says he wants to be a Valyrian, if at all possible, but he doesn't want to impinge upon Martin's mm -hmm. creative process. He's just going to leave it to Martin to decide how he will kill Dave Goldblatt in the next <laughs> book. <laughs> I haven't read these. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know it either. I only know what I pick up from Twitter and Facebook of um, of people talking about the stories, but my understanding is that Dave Goldblatt is not the kind of name that George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin typically goes yeah, well, for. I, I think we said that. I wonder if he's going to Westerios it. I mean, like, can he turn it into some sort of like, I don't know, maybe there can be some sort of, he can be Davos Goldblatt <laughs> or something. I don't know. Who mm. knows? Interesting. I wonder if there's a Game of Thrones name generator online. I feel oh, like if there's that's not, interesting. there should be where you plug in your name and it it, it westerosifies it. <laughs> it is kind of amazing how much we know about it without knowing it, right? I mean, I know Tyrion Lannister and Cersei and dragons mm, and wildings and just through um, rapiness. The, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, let's move on from there to something um, less controversial like prisons. Um, this is another bit of follow-up. We talked about uh, probably about a month ago that there was um, a prohibition on sending books to prisoners. Uh, but one publisher, Andrew Franklin of Profile Books, um, volunteered to spend a night in jail uh, with a Jeffrey Archer novel to raise awareness and raise money for let's see what exactly is the name of the let's see do they have an organization say what the organization name is yeah this um, is in the it's in the uk and they had 18 people volunteered to be locked up overnight um and it but there were only six cells mm -hmm. so they did fundraising i guess like the bigger picture fundraising version of dropping pennies in the bucket for the organization that you want to receive the money so um 800 donors stepped in and raised more than fifty thousand pounds yep. uh, for this effort and then six publishers are spending a night uh in jail uh in efforts to raise money and awareness now for the to raise howard league for penal reform Okay. In the UK. So sounds yeah, like to, a prisoner's uh, advocacy group. Yeah, to raise the, to lift the ban on gifts of books to prisoners. So um, people are doing some stuff. We like yeah, that. Yeah, that's creative. Good on them. Well. Not much else to say about that, not but much it's else to happening. Say about that. Uh, let's do some stats. Um, so reading is fundamental. Uh, that does a lot of interesting yeah. stats that we've read about on the show before. And this is about what parents say their priority is for the summertime with their kids. Mm -hmm. And it said only 17% of parents say reading is a top priority this summer, according to a new survey. Um, more than 1,000 parents with children ages 5 to 11 completed the survey online in April. Um, let's see. More than 60% yeah. of parents in the survey said they do not believe their child loses reading skills over the summer. Um, let's see, it's results are highlighted, blah, blah, blah. On average, parents say their child spends 17.5 hours a week watching TV or playing video games, 16.7 hours per week playing outside, and only 5.9 hours per week reading. Uh, I linked this in critical linking this week, and mm -hmm. I said... This maybe doesn't sound that bad. Am I wrong yeah, about no, this? I mean, that's, okay. that's what I've been thinking too. Like, and I'm not a parent, but I remember being a kid in mm -hmm. the summer and I was a bookish kid, but I don't think I spent more than, well, they're saying the average here is 5.9. I probably spent An eight hour or 10 a hours a week yeah, reading. Right. Um, it seems to me like this is, I love reading is fundamental. And so I am torn about right. what I'm about to say. Uh, 
But it seems to me that this is another let's all be scared about this headline and pass it around headline that's yes. not actually that troubling. Um, and even the phrasing of the headline indicates that they want you to be worried about it. Only 17% of parents believe reading is a top priority in the summer. Um, there are lots of priorities for families mm-hmm. and kids in the summer. Um, I think they do have a good point in this piece that we'll link to in the show notes that even though 60% of parents say they don't believe their child loses reading skills, there's a lot of existing research that shows that summer learning loss is a major problem Mm -hmm. um, for kids uh, across subjects. Um, So reading skills would be one of those. But you know, two or three hours a day playing outside. I guess that also includes like if you're going to the pool or going on hikes Mm -hmm. or whatever. And 5.9 hours a week reading, like that's, that's pretty good. You and I have both talked about just trying to get an hour a day to read in our, in our adult lives. And so if I had to break out the time that I spend, you know, like what, eight hours a day looking at a computer, an hour or two a day reading four hours a week at the gym, I'm just thinking in my summer times, if we're talking about kids, what they say, 5 to 11, mm-hmm. a lot of that summertime for me was spent with friends in the summer and just like right. kids in the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. you, very rarely you're like, hey, let's all get together and read for a while. <laughs> right. And it just doesn't really. And I also thought it was weird that they lumped in watching TV or playing video games. Uh-uh. Like, I wonder if they have separated those out. The six hours a week of reading maybe would even seem better, right? Because mm-hmm. if, let's say, even if, let's say, if five hours a week of that is playing video games, then the headline is kids spend more time reading during the summer than playing video games. But that's just not convenient well, that's for what I'm getting saying. your link that's exactly, passed around, Right, Jeff. that's exactly what I'm saying, right? And if it's, you know, if it's 12 hours a week watching TV and six hours a week of reading, mm-hmm. it, they've spent twice as much time watching TV in this. I'm like, that doesn't seem terrible. Like, more reading is better, blah, 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 mm-hmm. whatever. But um, this one just didn't really... It just feels like there's kind of no meat on the bone here. Yeah, I, w- I was trying to think what like it's what you know, question would you ask? Like I mean, parents who consider reading to be extremely or very important are twice as likely to have a child who reads every day. Okay, that's intuitive. If you value reading a lot and you think it's important, you are more likely to make your child read every day. Mm-hmm. Or to have, you know, one of those little magic bookmarks that has the timer on it that, yeah. that you set that then dings when you've met your quota. And then you know, children who were involved in a reading program were up to two times more likely to read That's every day, which is cool. You know, lots of libraries or lots of libraries do over the summer, um, some, bleh, over the summer, lots of libraries do summer reading programs um, that encourage kids to read. And it creates that kind of com- competition element, I guess, you know, at least filling out your little bracket um, of all the books that you've read. But only two times more likely to read every day if you're in a summer reading program. Right. I mean, I don't know what kind of multiplier I'm expecting, but... Well, and I think this read every day bit is interesting. Like, I I understand where literacy organizations come from with encouraging parents to read to their kids every day or to make their children read every day and to make that just part of their daily lives. But there are days that I don't read, Sure, you know, and I'm sure there are days where you don't read, where like a book is just not a thing that you've got a moment for in that day. And so I think it's, um, it's interesting to be holding parents and kids up to a standard that we don't expect reasonable, we don't reasonably expect adults to do, or I don't. I don't think it's reasonable to expect an adult to absolutely have reading time every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Eighty-two um, percent of parents said their child preferred print books for summer reading, compared to seven percent preferring tablets and four percent preferring e-readers, which only adds up to ninety-four percent. Uh, anyway, so I don't. And it made that, like that. that bit makes me wonder about how many of these kids have had a chance to try reading on tablets or reading eBooks? How Mm -hmm. much of it is like a default preference? My kid prefers print books. That is the only kind of book they have access to. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's some. Maybe you could compare it. Do they have daily access to a tablet and, that would right. be a sub question. Like if they do, what's their preference? Right. If you're using the library, which like that's how I made it through summers as a kid was those trips to the library with my parents where it was like, you can check out as many books uh-huh. as you can carry. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's probably some bias in the numbers because a lot of the, they say twice as likely to read if you're in a summer reading program. So your reading choices at most libraries for kids, it's just easier to go browse the books and do whatever you need to do mm-hmm. there. Um, anything with Conducted online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to wonder. Got to wonder about that. I, I do wonder 
12 to 18 mm-hmm. year old what that would look what like. It would look like. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I wonder, that would be really interesting. Um, did you have summer reading assignments in high school? Things you had to no, read before school started? No, not that I you remember, didn't? no. We had, I think going into freshman year, we had to read one book over the summer. And then it was two books going into sophomore year, three books, junior year, and four books, senior year that you were expected to finish before and what, school started. What, did you, what happened if you didn't, like, what did they do the first day they um, give you a quiz? That sounds horrible. Yeah, that's actually what we, they did the, over the summer going into my freshman year was Fahrenheit 451. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like, I think I've talked about it. I had an incredible teacher for that. So you read the book on your own and then it was the first book of your first unit of English class in high school. And he was great. And I think we mostly reread it as we were going through talking about it. But I do very clearly remember struggling through All Quiet on the Western Front the summer before my sophomore year, mm-hmm. um, which was before my love affair with war novels began. <laughs> and having a not awesome teacher and like having to sit down and take a quiz on that book on the first day. I don't remember what the other assigned book was. Um, but there were, going into senior year, we had to read a bunch of Henry James short stories and some other things and you had to show up like it was honors and so i don't know if they if the standard english students had to do the same assignments but you had to like show up on the first day with a short story that you had written over the summer that was related to or inspired by daisy miller Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm not still thinking about it 14 years later (laughs) the only i i did the um as i think a lot of kids did uh the Pizza Hut's Book It thing in the oh, summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I where if you read too. books, you got, I think for every 10, you got a free personal pan pizza. Mm-hmm. And let me say, I got a few pizzas a few summers. <laughs> um, pizza had actually if, started in Wichita, Kansas. So I don't know if that was like a Midwestern thing, especially yeah, I, or if that was a nationwide program. I did that growing up in Kansas also. And then the local libraries had the things where you got your little tear off oh, yeah. form. Yeah. And then I think you could probably fit 20 books on. And when it was completed, you took it back to the library and you got something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember what it was, but I remember thinking that was cool. I think though the kids that are going to be motivated by a book reading competition are probably like, those are the kids that are most likely to be reading on their own. Yeah. I wonder anyway. like, what actually uh, added reading time. I mean, probably you got another, probably book it squeezed another 20% of reading out of me during the summer for some pizza. I would get, I don't know who knows. <laughs> Um, but you wonder how many kids are like, ah, I don't really want to read. Oh, do I, like if, if I read 10 books, I get a pizza? Maybe. Like if Maker's know. Mark would do this for <laughs> adults, I will. <laughs> <laughs> books for bourbon, I'll do it. That would be really funny. Um, <laughs> all right, more kind of smallish news all over the place. Mm-hmm. So if you've been sitting on a big Sherlock Holmes fan fiction novel. Now's your time. Now's your time. Because the Seventh Circuit Court ruled that Sherlock Holmes is now officially in the public domain. Um so um, a Sherlock Holmes enthusiast named Leslie Klinger filed the case against the Doyle estate while he was preparing a short story anthology of his own um, in company of Sherlock Holmes with that a bunch of contemporary writers that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of do fractured version of existing Sherlock Holmes stories. So the agreed the copyright expiration meant that Klinger doesn't need the permission of the Doyle estate to publish the book. And neither do any of the people that are currently doing mm-hmm. um, Doyle estate sanctioned, basically fan fiction of Sherlock, including the BBC's Sherlock series, um, the Warner Brothers Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey Jr., the CBS series, Elementary, uh, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this. I would like to see a gender-shifted Sherlock uh, Holmes you know now. What? I think... Uh, Michelle and I were talking about we're into the um, the CBS show Elementary. It's pretty good mm-hmm. actually. If you're looking for something to catch up with this summer, there's a bunch of episodes. Um, I I totally agree. Right there with you. Because Lucy Liu is Watson, right? On Elementary, and it's cool that yep. there's a Lady Watson. But it makes me wonder if the reason we haven't seen a gender shifted Sherlock yet has something to do with the estate not approving it. And now that mm, that's out the yeah. door. Moriarty in elementary, spoiler alert, is a lady in elementary, Ooh. which is, there's a nice dynamic there. Uh, so that's not all the way. Oh, you know what? This, in the same article, it's kind of a roundup at Entertainment mm-hmm. Weekly. There's this other story I forgot to link to. Um, it's about the sales of Hillary Clinton's book. Yeah. Uh, Hard Choices sold uh, 85,000 copies its first week. Um, which sounds like a lot. But mm-hmm. I guess it's not 
great. I'm not really sure. Um, Clinton's yeah, well, in her, 23, 20, uh, her 2003 memoir. Wait, was that hers or was that Bill's? Living his, it says, I don't remember. I think it was hers. Her okay. 2003 memoir sold 600,000 copies. So maybe during... we've already gotten, we, people were already um, getting their Hillary fill with mm-hmm. Living History. But she doubled Mitt Romney's first week sales of No Apology. In his first week, he sold 42,000 copies. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Living History was by Hillary. So I, I'm guessing that sucked up all the oxygen. Maybe that's what's happening is people thought they and got their Hillary book I already. Also, it feels to me like the early part of the summer is a weird time to drop a big memoir by a mm. political figure. A giant, and it's, in like an, it's like an 800-page hardback. Like It's not super easy right. to take on a plane. Right. I heard you say on the show last week that Michelle was listening to it on yeah. audio and that it's like 30, 30 hours, hours long. And I've been debating, like, do I want to spend 30 hours? Mm-hmm. Can I even spend 30 hours listening to an audiobook? I don't know that I can. I'm not buying this thing in hardcover and lugging it around. But the ebook is almost as expensive as a print copy. Oh, the last right? time I looked, the ebook was 1999. Mm. And I mean, I love Hillary. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, presidential candidates do this in the year or two before they're getting ready for the big run. They kind of get everything on the record mm-hmm. and, um, you know, deal. Like, and this the, one was a, you know, a, lot, a lot of the stuff people were interested about Benghazi and, and kind of trying to you, set their record have you straightish. Seen, like any advertising for this book? Because I was thinking about mm. if if I didn't live in the book journet and spend time looking around at new titles and like you know paying attention to what people are talking about on Twitter, I don't think I've seen anything publicizing this. And I do remember when Living History came out, seeing it places. I saw banner and, ads on the New York Times. I remember okay. seeing that. But I also pay attention to book related ads online, so <laughs> that could be some uh, selection bias on my part as well. I just wonder how much they've. Um, I don't know. Y- y- like. When a book doesn't sell well, there's all, there there can be all kinds of reasons for it, and publishers um, often don't acknowledge the fact that if they don't spend a lot of money right. advertising a book, that contributes to a book selling well or I not. I mean, doubling well. Romney's book in 2012, mm-hmm. like I guess that was after the election, so well, that's a lot less interesting. And too. she was much more in the uh, spotlight in the media in 2003 than she is. That, right now, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, in two thousand three, we were coming up on election years. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's the presumptive Democratic candidate, and she's been through the right. vetting process once already. We feel like we know her. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. Uh, okay, let's go on. So we like oh, to highlight Kickstarter. So why don't you walk us through this? Yeah, one? this is um, some friends of ours at Housing Works Bookstore in New York, um, run by uh, Amanda Bullock, who does their events there, and some friends of hers. They do a Moby Dick marathon. Uh, every two years where it's like a, a three-day live marathon reading of Moby Dick. Um, regular people from their uh, community of customers sign up to do spots, like to take a, an excerpt and to read it. And they also, uh, because they're an awesome bookstore in New York with lots of connections, tend to get um, great authors signed up as well. And so if you follow it online, you get to see like, oh, this awesome, cool person who's a best-selling famous author is standing in Housing Works reading <laughs> a chapter of Moby Dick right now. Uh, and they move between a couple bookstore locations. They do themed snacks like chowder and all sorts of things. And so the Moby Dick Marathon launched a Kickstarter yesterday um, with the goal of raising $5,000 just to um, to cover some of their production expenses and to enable them to grow the marathon uh, in new and exciting ways and do some better publicity for it and who knows what. Uh, and so you can look for, if this sounds awesome to you, which it, I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, I'm not sold on the idea of marathon readings, but I want to hang out with these people planning their <laughs> marathon reading for three days. And it moves all over the city, if my memory serves. They do it, it in does. several different places and a bunch of different authors. And they have some sweet Moby Dick related they do. swag that you can get uh, if you back this Kickstarter. So they're trying to raise $5,000. It launched uh, yesterday morning at the time of this recording, and they already have uh, $3,200 lined up. So they're going to hit this goal and then some. Uh, But if this is the first you're hearing of it, or maybe you've been to the Moby Dick Marathon in the past and you want it to be even bigger and better, uh, then you can look for the Kickstarter link or search for Moby Dick Marathon NYC on Kickstarter and throw them some of your dollars and get some Moby Dick stuff. Sweet. 
Yep, that's one of my favorites. Um, cool Kickstarter things. Oh, can I talk about this next yes, one? Yes, I, I love it's this so story. Great. So, uh, this has kind of been traveling around online this week, um, but it's about what happens when you share a book title with Stephen King. Uh, he had a novel out last year called Joyland that was sort of a pulpy throwback story that he only published in print. Uh, and at the time, I think we talked about, like, why would an author do this um, when ebooks matter so much to people? Uh, and there is a Canadian author named Emily Schultz, uh, who also has a novel out called Joyland. It's from 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, and she realized that she people were leaving negative reviews on her Amazon page, but they were not referring to her book. <laughs> so people had gone onto Amazon searching for Joyland by Stephen King, uh, but searching for the ebook and finding themselves unknowingly buying the ebook of Emily Schultz's Joyland because there's not an ebook edition of Stephen King's Joyland. And so some of these crazy. negative crazy. <laughs> right. Some of these negative reviews um, are of the uh I bought this book and it's not actually by Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, but she got a crazy high royalty check. I don't think she said how much it was for. No, she didn't. Um, but she got a royalty check and realized that um, there were many more of these people accidentally buying her book uh, than she had bargained for. So she's <laughs> launched, launched a Tumblr called Stephen King Money. Uh, it's stephenkingmoney.tumblr.com where she documents How she's what she's it. doing with the royalties that she has earned from people who bought her book when they meant to buy Stephen King's. Uh, it's great. It's so great. And I just, do. I guess enough people know the name of the book and they see that they, they search for it on Amazon mm -hmm. and they don't know what the cover looks like, presumably. Uh -huh. And they just don't pay they attention don't check to the author's to see name? the author's name, which I think is so weird. I know. Like, I was, I found last week, one of the things that I do for Book Riot is insert the Amazon affiliate links into posts. And I was searching for The Secret History by Donna Tartt last week. Uh -huh. And I just put in Secret History into the Amazon search bar. And it popped up like 20 things that weren't Donna Tartt before it popped up Donna Tartt. Oh, because that's like things. a little chestnut of nonfiction titling, The Secret right. History of X, right? And um, many of them were just called The Secret History um, or, you know, The Secret History of Salt mm. or whatever. Uh, and... I could see how it's possible to be like, oh, I'm looking for the secret history and this thing is called the secret history. But like people really you're buying books without looking at the author's name. And I don't think there's a mechanism where she could just blanket refund everybody. No. And she said that she, when she realized what was happening, because she was reading those negative reviews on her Amazon page and putting it together that people were looking for Stephen King and not her, she contacted Amazon about changing the metadata mm -hmm. on her page and about changing where she comes up in search results so that this wouldn't happen. But she did not receive any response from Amazon. And I think if you buy, you, you can request a refund through Kindle. So if people were really been out of shape and they could request to get their money back, and I think mm -hmm. there's a mechanism mechanism for that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I don't think it's her fault. Um, right. Amazon probably could do something to help people out. But I think if you're buying books online and you don't check to make sure, I've got, I don't have that much sympathy for yeah, you, I have to no, admit. It's like if I buy a t-shirt in the wrong size because I didn't check what was listed on the tag. It's not Target's fault right. that I ended up with the wrong t-shirt. They can take your return if you want to do it that way and you know go through the, the, the trouble of doing that. But um, what a, what an odd stroke of luck. Yeah, it's, and the, the Tumblr is great. She shows each item that she bought, how much it cost, uh, why she bought it, and then would Stephen King <laughs> like it? <laughs> so there's like a purchase, various Ikea items with a photo of her standing in Ikea, uh, cost $94.70. The note, some cliches are true. When Brooklyn writers get a payday, they shout Ikea run and high five. <laughs> and then <laughs> would Stephen King like it? Ikea is just waiting to be used as a perfectly uncanny and terrifying setting. Oh, there's a there's actually a mystery thriller set in Ikea. I saw it at BDA. Is there really? Uh, I'll look for the title. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually it's actually being passed around. It's not out yet. It's called like Horror Straw with like those two little umlauts over one of them. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't remember. I'll find it. But um, that's it I've is a setting. You're actually on the money for that. There should be some sort of like uh, relationship self help book 
with Ikea as like different stations in Ikea Mm -hmm. as different stations of like premarital counseling. Like before you can marry someone, you should have to like buy buy a couch with someone. Right. You should have to survive an Ikea trip, go on a vacation, see each other through having the flu. Yeah. (laughs) Double stomach flus and um, Thanksgiving at in-laws. Right. Yeah, right. there you go. You got it pretty much wired. But, uh, what what a weird unintended consequence of King making the decision not to have an ebook version. Yeah. Um, probably didn't anticipate a bunch of people and, misspending their dollars because they couldn't. And it must be happening at Barnes and Noble and, I, and yeah. Apple and Google and, and all these other places. I was you can trying buy to think of um, you know this probably happens with overlapping titles or overlapping author yes. names all the time. Yeah. Uh, but right. it's, we're hearing about this because so many people look for Stephen King books and he is just so widely read. So I've been trying to think about like, who else could this happen to? Like maybe if there was another Dan Brown or yeah, right. some other author named James Patterson. Well, or it happens someone... where um, leeches in the Kindle, in like the self pub part of the Kindle will upload and it'll get it taken down, but they'll they'll title their own fan fiction Fifty Shades of Grey right. just to try to like get the people who are clicking the wrong link and sucking up some. But that's that's a different mm-hmm. that's actually fraud, right? Um, but there are enough people clicking the wrong yeah. thing that it's a thing that people think is worth trying. All right. Anyway, um, StephenKingMoney.tumblr.com. Yeah, that's that's what a weird windfall. Um, oh Kansas, come on! I know. This is a bummer. You have to take this one, So, Leewood, Kansas, which... um, Not far from where I grew up at all. Yeah, it's a suburb of Kansas City, right? Basically, Mm -hmm. Leewood. Yeah. Um, Brian Collins, who lives in Leewood, installed a little free library, which I think we've talked about on the show before. And if you don't know what it is, it's basically... A little free library is basically a cabinet or just a Mm -hmm. couple of shelves that you put out in your front yard or a park or something. And you put books in there and people give and take books on their own recognizance. Um, it's kind of been a thing recently. Yeah, for, um, yeah, for the last year or two. Swapna, who writes for us, um, has been doing a little series about her, the comings and goings of her little free library. I always like to see her updates, mm-hmm. how to run one, how to be a good, responsible citizen. But um, Brian Collins went out of doubt, town for a few days last week, and we came back. He found a letter from the city saying him that um, his little free library was not permitted under city code because it was a detached structure from his house <laughs> and he's until june 19th to come into compliance so he's got to attach it to his house which means then people have to walk, walk up to his house which is super weird right, right? to use it uh, this is just this is bad lame. job this kansas is like and if you're a taxpayer in leewood kansas i imagine you're thinking this is where my tax dollars Seriously. are going like of all of the things that we could be paying city officials to do we've got city officials who are worried about someone giving people free books from a cabinet in his front yard <laughs> just i mean bad job leewood a, have, you, have you seen any little free libraries in the wild? Yes, there's one in Carroll Gardens, my old neighborhood in Brooklyn, and there's another one around here in Dimas Park somewhere. Don't be creepy and triangulate my position. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I've seen them out in the wild, and they're yeah. not attached. And there's a picture of the Collins with his son Spencer, mm-hmm. and he's put a little couple of stepping stones from the sidewalk, and there's a little and bench next to it where you can so sit down cute. on it. And it's so cute that whatever, whoever wrote the citation should have just evaporated into Grinchness. As I was they were just walking about to make a Grinch reference. Right? I mean, seriously. And so let me get this. So like lemonade stands are, you can't, you're not supposed to have that. I mean, maybe it, because it's supposed to be a permanent structure where a lemonade stand is. But this thing is, looks like a chair with a shelf on it. I mean, yeah, it's like uh, a to call this thing a structure a is like attached. stretching the, the law, it really the definition. Is. And, like, this, what about a tree like, house? What yeah, about, you a, need what this, about those play sets that are like huge? This thing is smaller than like one of those plastic play set Fisher this person price needs a hobby. And I think someone, um, I tweeted this from the Book Riot account yesterday, and someone was like, well, what if he'd bought a second mailbox and labeled his second mailbox as leave a book, take a book? Would that be 
acceptable because mailboxes are acceptable as things that are not attached to your house well, or would you don't it be unacceptable the because office. of the mail? Yeah, right. yeah, it's but I mean it's just of all the things to worry about. This is not bad cool. job government. This is bad job government. There's um I don't we might have some in Richmond, but I haven't seen any little free libraries in Richmond, but there's one attached not attached, there's one standing on the sidewalk by a community building um in my husband's parents' neighborhood in St. Louis. And every time we go there, different titles there. Like we go walking past it whenever we take a walk in the evenings. And often the titles change from day to day. People are using it. Like this is a free community service. Um, let's, Let Brian Collins keep so his little free library. The city, administ city administrator, <laughs> Scott Lambers, he re responded with an email and he said, I would suggest that citizens who are interested in this endeavor contact the Johnson County Library to see if this is an activity that the library would permit. To so oh, you're going to attach a little understand. library to the big library. <laughs> that, that's like, what we're going to do. When big libraries have babies. <laughs> it's like little library barnacles. This is, that would be, yes, that that's the show time, library <laughs> barnacles. Uh, like, what would even be the point of that? This looks like, I, I this would make Leslie Nope's head spin. Yeah, I feel like um, we need to have... Uh, an you, intervention you, here for Lee Wood. You just can't be bothered to walk all the way into the real library. So we've put this little free library in its yard. Come on, man. And you see this Spencer, he's got his sports sandals on and he's standing. I mean, come on, man. You're killing a nine-year-old You're, you're killing us. This is all right. Book sharing dreams. <sighs> I just can't. All right. This is not cool. Let's talk about our other sponsor. Let's do our other sponsor. Uh, this week, the show is sponsored by How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky by Lydia Netzer, which comes out uh, in early July. And it's this is a great novel. I love Lydia Netzer, and I, I read the book several months ago. Um, it's about two astronomers. Uh, the woman spends her research time trying to create black holes, and the man is setting out to use astronomy and what he can detect um, in the universe to prove the existence of God. So they're coming from really different perspectives, um, but they find themselves at the Toledo Institute of Astronomy, which is one of the premier uh, places to do astronomy mm -hmm. in uh, in the country and they start to fall in love but then they also start to figure out that their mothers knew each other and were friends since childhood and actually their mothers wanted them to fall in love with each other and marry each other so they raised them separately to be soulmates like you know they would uh, both moms would read the kids the same uh, obscure poem at bedtime mm -hmm. or sing them the same songs. And so when they're first meeting each other and first getting to know each other, it seems like they have all of these things in common that no one else would know, but it's not serendipity. It's not, uh, you know, sort of that accidental bumping into your soulmate. This was very planned mm -hmm. uh, by their mothers. And there's this big question at the heart of the book that is, can true love exist if it's planned? Um, can, like, can, could this thing even work? Um, there are unintended consequences, of course. And the couple discover the secret and start unraveling the other family secrets that they have. And, and so on the big level, it's about fate and determinism. Uh, but Netzer does this great thing in her fiction, which is also present in her uh, previous novel called Shine, 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 where she weaves in sort of big science ideas uh, and stuff about space and robots and the universe. And and so it's not just a love story. It's not just two people um, falling for each other and unraveling these family secrets, but there uh, is lots of great other, uh, you know, sort of hard science elements with this softer love story. Um, and I think her language is really quirky and interesting. There's a defined voice and a rhythm to the way that she writes. Uh, so the book, again, is How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky by Lydia Netzer. Um, it's going to be available, of course, as an ebook and as an audiobook. Uh, and she has an e novella that is coming out also called Everybody's Baby that is unrelated, uh, but that we've been talking about on the show as well. So thanks to them for sponsoring. Lydia has been a great friend of Book Riot's from day mm -hmm. one. So we're really thrilled to, to have the book and to be able to talk about it. Um, but I also, I can tell you that it's great because uh, I read it on vacation back in January. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. Um, and you can find it anywhere books mm -hmm. are sold. Yeah, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes So also. one thing I like to do especially is um, talk about data and statistics that 
are running counter to the larger cultural narrative mm -hmm. that books are dying and publishing is going belly up and we're all going to um, just sit around playing Candy Crush until the apocalypse. Um, and um, Jane Friedman linked on her site this week to actually a graph that Publishers Marketplace put together that I think was behind a paywall, which is I didn't see it. I don't subscribe to Publishers Marketplace. Um, but she pulled it out, and it showed how much money the big publishers actually make. Mm -hmm. And it's 2006 through 2013. And, I mean, it, if you just sort of listen to the world, you would say there's no way that publishing profits is up more than 20% over the last six years. And yet. And yes. And yet. In 2006, um, the big five, well, then the big six, now the big five, um, put them all together. They did $8.6 billion in revenue <sighs> and did $817 million in profits. And then in 2013, they did $9.2 billion in revenue and one point zero zero seven billion dollars in profits. Wow. So really the profits are even up more than revenue is up percentage wise. Mm -hmm. And they attribute to a lot of that to the growth of digital, which the production costs kind of stay the same. Um, there are more expenses incurred, but you've done the editing, you've done the cover design, you've done the advances. Um, and the author royalties on ebooks tend to be a little bit lower. That may change in the future. Um, but it did dip from 2006 to 2009. It went from $817 million of profits to $735 million in profit. So if you want to make an even stronger case for the strengthening of publishers, you could chart 2009 to 2013. In that case, profits would be up something like 33% over the last four years. And we have, um, I think I've mentioned on the show over the last couple of quarters, that the 2013 results for most publishers were actually pretty good. Uh, HarperCollins, Hachette. Um, all had double-digit profit growth. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I guess if you work for a publisher, that's good news. Um, if you like the way books are published now and the ecosystem around books as it is right now, this is probably good news. Um, if you're an author, I guess it's good news. I'm not always sure that the interests in, of publishers and authors align quite as neatly as people suggest they do, but I'm not an insider there. Yeah. The what do you think that, about this? I mean, is there anything you know, other than just, ha, 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 turns out? I mean, other right, than that. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting that the data is not congruent with the dominant narrative about what's happening in publishing. Mm -hmm. but it, and it really makes me wonder then, why is that narrative the dominant narrative? Like, what's... What is going on in publishing that where, you know, the profits are up, things right. are actually doing okay, but all of the headlines and the like scare quote stories that get passed around on the internet every week are about how books are dying. Like, does it simply come down to people being afraid of new technology and, and the transition from print to digital, even though like digital is helping make publishers more profitable mm -hmm. um, and cutting down on expenses. Like, is, is that it? Well, I think um, it's... or like, what is there to be gained from the, like this really negative narrative that we hear all the time when the numbers don't line up with it? I think, and you tell me what you think, but it's probably the visible sign to us of publishing strength is the physical bookstores we see around us, right? Mm. Well, and Borders has gone belly up, Barnes & Noble has been cr contracting, and over this same period, independent bookstores have been contracting. So I think it's it's counterintuitive for most people to think, look at all these bookstores going away, and yet publishing is making more money Right, it's how can ever. books be okay if bookstores aren't right. okay? Right, and I think that's something, you know, you and I have talked about on not, I mean, off the podcast ourselves is like the correlation between the health of bookstores and publishing are not necessarily uh, inextricably linked. Right. Yeah. You know, I think there's, I think you're right there. There's conflation of a lot of different factors and, and like conglomerating them all into one big story is like uh, bookstores are not healthy. So publishing can't be healthy mm -hmm. or um, individual authors earnings are down. And so publishing must not be healthy. Um, or Amazon is, is putting the screws to publishers. Right, so they must what, be really getting nailed by Amazon. Whatever well, is going to happen to readers. And it does yeah. turn and like, we're not hearing from readers very often who are concerned for their own reading experiences no. or for their, their access to books or 
or for the amount of good books that are being published. But we've talked about how what's good for publishers might not be the same as what's good for readers. Um, what's good for books, like long-term, big picture, might not be the same thing as what would be good to save bookstores. Um, but all those things get bundled up together into one giant like health of the book world, state of the book world measure. Um, the other thing that's and not, all of oh, those are just like feelings. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is different. Like you can't, you can no longer go to that Barnes and Noble that was in your town and go look at the books. Like it, that's a material change. Now right, it doesn't right. mean that the overall trend is changed, but it's a material change in your life. They don't talk about um, middle size or small presses here. Mm. Um, and I, you know, there could be that there had been under more, like you need scale to compete yeah. in some of these new markets and the way things are bought and sold online, especially now. So that's one thing that's, these are the biggest publishers that have consolidated um, and, and changed their operations to, um, to do better in this new world that we live in mm -hmm. now. So I'd be interested if there was like a um, representative group of, you know, 20 middle sized to small publishers, what their earnings and sales have looked like over the same period. I don't, I don't know if their margins have been compressed or expanded or not. I have no idea. But that's one limitation of the data mm -hmm. we're looking at right here. All right. Um, let's see. What do you want to do next? Hmm. Let's do a little Amazon follow-up just while we're on it. I thought this was interesting. <laughs> We've been talking about the Amazon Hachette um, showdown. Yeah. And um, leave it to J.K. Rowling to yes. break... To some degree, the detente, um, when the book first came out, came out last week. Or wait, mm -hmm. was it the this week? The Silkworm. Last week? This week? It's this week. This it, week. It came, came out, out this Tuesday. Um, so it was being offered on by Amazon.com as shipping within one to two months. Um, <laughs> and then people got screw got pissed on mm -hmm. Twitter, on Facebook, on Kindle discussion forums, and filing complaints and questions with the site. And since, as of Friday morning, that suggested... Uh, um, that expected wait time is one to two days to process. Yep. So leave it to Joe. And I also saw, I, well, I, I think part of the story here is like rolling can push yep. Units. these things to happen. Right. Rolling moves books and that's compelling to Amazon mm -hmm. um, to back down on that title by title basis. But I also think Amazon is paying closer attention to the action that individual titles are getting, yeah. individual Hachette titles are getting, than they're acknowledging, because Amazon doesn't publicly acknowledge anything. Right. Uh, but Carolyn Kellogg, who uh, blogs about books for the LA Times, tweet I saw her tweet yesterday that she uh, had looked up The Fever by Megan Abbott, which ah. is a new book this week, which is a Hachette title, on Amazon. And um, Amazon like then... Email, I think sent her an email. This was on Twitter, so I, like yeah, the yeah. details are hazy. Either she got one of those like automated emails from Amazon, or the next time she went to Amazon to look at the fever, they had um, put back in the pre-order button for it because she had already looked up that Hachette title. And Amazon thought, you know, since she had looked for it once, she might be likely to spend money on it. And so it opened up at least for her in whatever their, mm. you know, algorithm is that's happening over there, the option to pre-order the book and to get it at the right time. I mean, it feels like this is turning into a, we've always been at war with uh, Eurasia situation now where <laughs> Amazon is going to concede the, the titles that will hurt them the most. I mean, they're losing... Mm -hmm tens of thousands of sales of the silkworm and maybe they like, well, okay, we'll concede on that one, but we're going to keep the rest of the backlist under pressure. Right. And then yeah. Hachette's like, like well, we'll if... you know, 80% of our sales are front list titles. So yeah, you've got to think if this were random house and there were a new Dan Brown book that Amazon yeah. would be doing the same thing that you might not be able to get your Margaret Atwood backlist from right. Amazon or, or the, you know, a, another less well-known authors backlist title from Amazon, but that like, by God, they're going to sell their 6 million copies of the new Dan Brown on release day. Well, we've long wondered what would happen if an author, a high profile author, and you, you get no higher profile. Um, right. Than JK, you know, if a few of them got together or a few of them under one house and just said, you know what, we don't like Amazon, we don't like what they do, you just can't buy our books from them forever, and they pull all their books. Like mm -hmm. it shows you that people don't care about Amazon when it comes to books; they care about the the books. Like one uh, one reader wrote in and said, um, you don't get between a reader and her JK Rowling, and I yeah. think that's indicative, right? Like. People aren't loyal to Amazon. They use Amazon to get to the thing they actually want. They don't actually want Amazon. They want the right. silkworm. 
And that when Amazon is the cheapest, easiest, yeah. fastest way to get things and people value cheap, easy, fast, then they use Amazon. But it's not about being loyal to, right, it's not about being loyal to Amazon. It's not like Amazon has this, you know, active and thriving community of Amazon fans who love each other and talk to each other about how much they love Amazon. It's that Amazon is a vehicle. And mm -hmm. if somebody has a faster car, you know, to right. get you to the place that you want to go. And, and then that's what you get. If you want your JK Rowling, if you want your Dan Brown fix, like there are, um, there are, if it's new Toni Morrison day, I am ordering new Toni Morrison from the place that I'm going to get my fingers on it the right. fastest. Yeah. And that happens to be driving to the indie bookstore 10 minutes from my house, you know, but if someone else offers me faster, mm -hmm. I might reconsider. And I think that we're seeing that here. Right, like with I, Amazon, maybe Amazon overestimates the degree to which people actually love Amazon right. rather than the particular things that Amazon provides. That's them right, with. I, especially when it comes to books and authors, and that's just one small part of what they do. I don't know who I was talking to, maybe it was Clint, but I was saying it's kind of like I think of Amazon as like an airline. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not excited to get on the plane. Right. Um, well, I might be only in so far though as it's getting me to where I want to go. Right. Like you're ending up in. I'm in Honolulu, right? right. Honolulu is the thing I'm excited about, and I happen to choose your airline because I got the best price at the time that at night. Well, maybe I got an exit row or whatever. But if your if your airline went away, I'm still going to Honolulu, man. Mm -hmm. Like I'm I'm going some other way. So I think this is one thing we know. You and I know this also from what we do online is that certain authors and certain books have such wattage that they can really shape the way people think about mm -hmm. their experience of buying and reading and living their lives when, online. Like Stephen King is one that would be a great example. Oh, when, yeah. when he did Joyland and he did it in print only, some of the talk there was about you know, critical feelings that he has, critical thoughts that he has about ebooks. Mm -hmm. But the print edition of Joyland was still available through Amazon. Right. So we've not yet seen no. a big author who has some power to throw around, re refuse to have their books sold on mm -hmm. Amazon. And I'm sure some of that might have to do with negotiating their contracts with their publishers and what would happen if Stephen King's agent started telling his publisher for the next book they make a deal on that they will not sell any of those books through Amazon, the publisher is going to start having that fear of like, well, if people can't get it on Amazon, they're just not going to buy it. And I right. think the story that we're getting here is no, that's not true. Like, well, probably who, some won't, but people who want their Stephen King right. will yeah. likely find another way to get it. The problem being for some people, there aren't other ways to get it or the other ways are more difficult because you live in a book desert without a bookstore nearby but, or your local really, library like, system. But, but is that true though? I can learn on Barnes and Noble. Right. You can you get can a Nook edition, you can get a print yeah. edition, you can order on Pals. Like, I, I think book deserts for physical bookstores are real, but for online ordering, I, I kind of yeah, feel like true. it isn't right. real. There's, there's an alternative for yeah. online ordering. I mean, ordering. maybe you pay a little more, maybe but they don't have the quick fulfillment all and all those other things. But It feels like this weird catch-22, like there's all this fear of Amazon yeah. from publishers, or what would happen if publishers stopped working with Amazon, or what would happen if they told Amazon that they couldn't have the new J.K. Rowling book, but everyone else could, and... It, I just really want to see someone, some publisher or some yeah. author walk up to that line and actually do the, okay, so what? So what? Like, yeah. what will actually occur if I don't sell my You'd books have on to Amazon? Go, I mean, let's find out. It'd be a harder to pick than rolling. You'd hard, have a hard, you have a harder to find a good candidate than rolling. Like someone people love, they're mm -hmm. going to find it no matter what. Um, they're going to go out of their way to get it. Like, maybe not the as Robert Galbraith. I mean, people know that now. But, like, if there were a new Harry Potter book and she, didn't, when, and she was just like, you know what? Amazon's been a thorn in the side of my publisher. I don't like what right. they do for X, Y, and Z reasons. It's going to be available everywhere else, but right. just not there, and I'm not into it. But, boy, that would be has, interesting. If it were another children's book or another book in the Harry Potter universe yeah. or something, like, there's a community around those books. Bookstores do release parties for them. There's There would be so much real opportunity to bring people into bookstores or point them towards other things. If you had to go to jkrowling.com to get your mm -hmm. information about where her next title was and it was like you can buy books in all of these places and there were little icons and just one of the icons was not amazon right. yeah that's interesting um, 
it would be a really interesting experience. I just want somebody to call Amazon's bluff. Like, let's actually find out what happens when a big author mm -hmm. d refuses to sell their books to Amazon or when a big publisher just pulls their whole list. So we have some data instead of just this like gloomy cloud feeling of something bad would happen. Like, what is the bad thing? How bad would it actually be? Would it would it hurt your bottom line? Yeah. Would readers just go find somewhere else to get your books? I mean, I wonder how many readers actually like, okay, let's say they couldn't get books at Amazon and they live in a book desert. Do they not know that you can go to Barnes & Noble online? Do they not know you can go to Powell's online? Like, I, there could be some just educational gaps there. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really have any experience with talking to people like that. So um, anyway, I, that's, that's interesting that she was a big enough draw and Amazon decided to yield there. And yep. that tells you a little bit about where the, who's wearing the pants. Right. Um, and if you, and I guess I'm interested in hearing from listeners too, if you happen to have been looking for other mm. books that are published by Hachette from other authors, if you've, if you happen to have experience, like seeing those buy buttons magically reappear, <laughs> or seeing the delivery times look right again. And mm. um, we'd be curious about which titles that was happening for. Let's skip Rush Limb Limbaugh being a jerk and go to new books here. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to something happy. So I mentioned The Fever by Megan Abbott uh, is a Hachette title. It came out this week. Uh, it is awesome. Uh, Megan Abbott writes these great noir sort of tightly wound thrillers, uh, maybe not quite thriller, but suspense stories. And she uh, lately has been tackling stories set in high schools. A couple of years ago, she wrote Dare Me, which is like um, Mean Girls and Bring It On, but darker, uh, like cheerle teenage cheerleaders doing horrible things to each other. Um, the fever is about what happens in a small town high school when one girl collapses having a seizure in class one day, comes down with a bunch of strange and unexplained symptoms that uh, no one in the local medical community can figure out what's going on with this girl. But then a bunch of the other girls, like dozens of the other girls in the school also start coming down with similar symptoms and there's no visible organic cause for them. So there's a lot of fear in the community and there's a lot of speculation. Um, maybe it's the HPV vaccines that all the girls just had to get ah. for school. Maybe it's something in the water. Maybe it's something from a local like treatment plant that um, has been poisoning the soil. N nobody knows. And so everybody's reaching for possible explanations and it's tapping into this like community fear. Um, and the story is pulled, like the inspiration from the story was pulled from uh, a thing that happened in real life in a small town a couple of years ago where girls came down with symptoms like this. And ultimately it was determined that this was kind of a modern day case of mass hysteria mm. for lack of a better term. Really? It's technically called conversion disorder, um, but where like tapping, like kind of what happened in the crucible, right. um, but in a modern day tap that girls live in incredibly pressure filled uh, and anxiety producing situations. These teenage girls do. And strange physical things mm. happen as a result of those psychological pressures. This is like, it's super dark and creepy. There are some sinister things happening between the teenage girls, but also just great tension built in the community of people around them that are trying to figure out what's happening. Um, and I think Megan Abbott is just so smart. There's, even if you kind of think you know where the story's going, you don't, or at least I, I'm never able to predict what she's doing. Uh, so that's the fever. It's out this week. Uh, you might have trouble getting it from Amazon, but I'm sure you can find it many other places if you're looking for it. And then uh, some great new paperback releases also. Uh, Longborn by Joe Baker is out in paperback this week. It's uh, the Pride and Prejudice story, but told from the perspective of the servants in the house, sort of a Downton Abbey flip on things or upstairs, downstairs. Got tons of praise last year. Um, I am not personally a Pride and Prejudice fan, so I didn't read this, but pretty much everyone <laughs> that I love did read it uh, and loved it. It showed up on Book Riot a bajillion times. Uh, it's L-O-N-G-B-O-U-R-N, Longborn uh, is the name of the manor. So if you're into Pride and Prejudice, um, you know, so many different takes on that story have come out in the last few years, but this one has been widely regarded as one of the good ones, one not to be missed, uh, and also seems to me like it would be a good thing to read over the summer. And The Lowland by Jhumpa Lahiri ah, is out yes. in paperback this week as well, which I have not read. Did you read it? I did. I like it's did. good. Um, it's it's classic um, Lahiri. You know, it's um, mm -hmm. uh, first and second gen generation immigrants. Um, it's good. I, I would recommend it if you liked any of her earlier her earlier books, 
uh, it's it's quite uh, it's quite good. So um, also the silkworm we just said, right? Oh right, yes. Just so we know by Robert Galbraith, aka JK. Aka JK. Um, <laughs> aka JK. I think that's our uh, show. That is our show. I'm just going to sit here giggling about aka JK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I was just thinking, what if George R. R. Martin's next book wasn't available on Amazon? Ooh. That would be interesting. But then how would we find out what happens to Dave Goldblatt? Yeah, Dave, is, do we know he's done, Dave is getting his, meeting his maker in the next book, or is it just sometime? Oh, I don't know. I think I just assumed it was the next book, but who knows? Who knows where we are in the process. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Reading Ape. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. SKY. Uh, <laughs> if you want to find show notes for this show or back shows, you go podcast.com slash book riot. You can drop us a note podcast at bookriot.com if you want to send us an email about whatever strikes your fancy got a question a comment or idea um, a clarification or a correction we are always looking at that if you are in a really super happy good giving mood rating the show on itunes um, go on itunes and just search for book riot you will find the show there and a rating and review puts us gives us some algorithm juice um, with apple and that's the number one way people discover brand new to them podcasts um, when they're searching around there. If you got more ratings and more reviews, you're more likely to show up when people are searching for things like book podcasts or literature podcasts or podcasts with witty, charming, and deceptively good-looking hosts. Um, you never know who's going to show up there. Uh, the <laughs> Teespring, teespring.com slash readmorebooks2. You want to find that. And boy, is that our, what else are we we want display. to thank Audible and How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky for sponsoring the show this week. Yep. And if you happen to be listening on Sunday the 22nd, oh. we're going to be hosting a live chat on the site at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, June 22nd for summer reading recommendations. Yep. Uh, where you can tell us, this is what I'm in the mood for. And we will say, here are some books that we recommend. As always, thanks for listening. I'm going to go start on my unpermitted little free library. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Bye.